stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Caleb, so much. Appreciate that. Uh, good to be with you, church. Uh, my name is Reed Kappel. I serve as one of the pastors here of the Olathe campus of Christ Community. And if I have not uh, seen you, said hi to you, well, I guess I can see you now. But if I haven't said hi to you, I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'd love uh, to do that. So come find me after the service. I'd love to get to know you. Uh, I'd love to just pray for our time. Uh, just ask for the Spirit to awaken us to His truth, for without Him we are hopeless to know uh, what God has for us in His Word. So let's take a moment to pray. Father in Heaven, we come to You in this time of worship, in the name of Your Son and by the power of Your Spirit, to make much of You. And we've come into this time, Lord, with, with various challenges and burdens, anxieties and questions that abound. And so, Lord, I ask that you would be the God who, who meets us in all of our afflictions, all of our worries, all of our unique situations. Lord, would you meet us? And so, Lord, I ask that your spirit, Holy Spirit, would you do only what you can do? Would you enliven within us, through our minds and our hearts, to hear, to know, to receive, and respond to your word. May it shine its beautiful, loving light into our dark, cold lives so that we might be warmed and refreshed by it. So Lord, I ask that by your spirit you would give me concision of, of speech, clarity of, of thought, and conviction of spirit as I share your word. And would you allow us all to worship you together as we hear from you. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. There are, there are moments, as, as a dad, I have, I have four kids, there are moments where you feel uniquely proud, you know, as, as a parent. Like, you know, I think I'm doing something right. I've, I've raised this child correctly, you know. And, and there was a moment recently where I just felt, you know what, 
I think my wife Megan and I were doing something correct. And it was when I introduced my children to the wonderful game of Settlers of Catan. And if you, so there was a, any Settlers of Catan fans out there? Okay, yeah, there's, there's dozens of us. Uh, so, the, like, like, what's so great about this game? So, if you've never heard of the game Settlers of Catan, this game is my favorite board game, but it is the game that distinguishes and sets apart kind of just normal gamers, like, uh, from, like, board game geeks. I am a self-proclaimed board game geek, and so if you know what Settlers of Catan is, you are in the board game geek category. If you've never heard it, it means you just play Monopoly and Sorry, and I'm very sorry for you that that's the, the world you live in. But, but this is one of my favorite games. We taught it to our kids, and it was, oh, it's just, it was so much fun, so many memories. And, and I have, as a parent, and even if you're not a parent, you know, we all have people in our lives who we influence, who we shape and inform and form, but we have responsibilities to instruct and to guide people in our lives to know how to live life. And so as a parent, I am responsible for teaching my children many, many things. And when I don't, if I fail to teach them something about, let's say, finance, for example, it's not that they just don't learn about finance. It's that that gap creates a vacuum, and it will be filled by someone or something. When I don't teach them something, it's not that there's just an absence there. It's that someone or something else will take my role of influencing, forming, and informing my children and do it for me. Because formation abhors a vacuum. When we leave a gap for very important subjects to be addressed, somebody else will fill it for us. This is true of families, and it is true of the church as well. As a church, if we, as followers of Jesus, if we aren't being formed and informed together on matters that are significant to our world, and if we are not being formed together by those matters on the foundation of the ways and the words and the work of Jesus, then we will be formed and informed by someone else. Make no two ways about it. We will be formed and shaped by someone or something else if we don't take the responsibility of understanding how to approach matters in our world from the perspective of Jesus and his word. And in our world today, it appears, from my vantage point, it appears as though, particularly around the subject of race, ethnicity, diversity, reconciliation, justice, all those words that are buzzwords, triggering words, even words right now, you're just like, where are we going today? You feel a little bit tense even hearing those words, but those words, they, the, 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 in our world today, it is our secular culture that is leading that conversation. When it should be the church of Jesus Christ who should be leading out in this, in this conversation. If there's any group of people on planet earth that should be passionate about understanding what it means to pursue a meaningful vision and picture of of ethnic unity and reconciliation and justice, it should be the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what has happened, in my estimation, is that in some ways, rather than leading out in this conversation as the church, there have been too many within the church who have resigned themselves to simply critique the ways in which our culture talks about race and justice and diversity and reconciliation. And, and, and granted, there are some things to critique about how our culture talks about race, justice, diversity, reconciliation. I get that. But my goodness, our energies should not largely and primarily be directed at just critiquing how it's being discussed. 
we should absolutely be proactive in leading the conversation. And in so doing, when we resign ourselves to simply critiquing, we leave a vacuum in our culture for a secular narrative to be filled in and to form people around matters of justice, diversity, race, and ethnicity. I don't know if you're familiar with with, uh, the Gospel Coalition, but they have a series of video debates called Good Faith Debates. They are phenomenal. Many great topics, uh, kind of culturally relevant in our world, where they take two Christians who agree theologically in many ways, but have differing viewpoints on particular cultural issues. And there's one in particular with Rebecca McLaughlin, who's a phenomenal thinker, author, scholar, theologian. And, And in this debate, they're talking about race and justice in our culture and how divided it is. And she says this is incredibly helpful, and I agree with her. She says, we should have been the first, so referring to the church, we should have been the first people saying black lives matter. We should have been shouting that the loudest. But what I fear is that our first response is to say that we have to keep all of this out of the church, when in fact we should have been leading these conversations within the church. We often end up using our critiques to justify not having the conversations in a proper way within the church. And I think she's absolutely right. Now again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Are there absolutely things that we should critique about the ways in which our culture talks about race and justice? Absolutely. There's totally problematic ways in which that's happening. Is that the primary role and posture of the church, to simply critique the culture? No. But I fear that what has happened in many ways in the church is that the church's silence on and even critique of key justice issues, specifically ethnic and racial justice issues, which I believe our text addresses, which we'll get to, I believe our silence and critique of these issues is a sign that we have abdicated our responsibility. We've surrendered our responsibility and leadership in the biblically mandated work of ethnic reconciliation, unity, and justice. This is a biblical issue before it is a social issue. And we need to be very mindful of that. And so so just right now, as we say this, like if you're new, uh, this is is a a subject that we're addressing because we've come to it in our text. We've been in a series in the book of Ephesians called Reconstructing Faith. And, And part of why we're addressing this issue is not just because scripture is bringing it to our attention, But because for many people who have deconstructed their faith or who are walking away from the faith, this subject, this broad conversation of justice and race and diversity, it is a major foundation for what has caused people to walk away. For some, some people have become disenchanted with Christianity because they see the church giving up on the work of racial justice. But then there are others who have become disenchanted with Christianity because they see the church giving in to a secular understanding of how race and justice and diversity should be understood. And while both groups have a valid viewpoint, both groups must return to the foundation of the gospel, of the full scope of the gospel of Jesus, if we are to reconstruct our faith properly. And so, so let me just say this, because I already feel the tension in this room, okay? Like, maybe you feel it too. Just, just literally take a deep breath right now. Just, it's okay. And, and the reason, I, I just want to address that tension, because this subject comes with a lot of baggage for people. There's a lot of, of associations with this terminology, with these words. 
And what I want to say is, like, can we just calm down for a second? Can we bring the volume and the heat down a bit to the point that we're able to hear and listen and look and see in the face of people who may disagree with us and try to understand where they're coming from so that they might extend the same courtesy to us? But let me also say as a disclaimer, as a, as a precursor to this, can we agree to stop the incessant and insidious practice of so lazily slapping the label of woke on somebody and bigot on somebody? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's just like, it is so, it is such a lazy and loveless thing to do when you're talking with someone that at the moment they say something that remotely looks like they disagree with you, you slap them with woke, you slap them with bigot. Are there legit bigots in our world and church? Yes, of course. Are there people that have embraced an ideology that is problematic and antithetical to the ways in which the Bible talks about justice? Yes. But I believe what has happened in our culture is that we have taken the, the, the boundaries of what constitutes wokeness and what constitutes bigotry, not that you're woke and not that you're bigots, just, just so you understand, but we've taken the boundaries of those things and we've expanded them to include like anything. There's just like, if you just mentioned that there was a civil war, you're a woke social justice warrior. If you just claim that you have questions about if white supremacy is still a thing today, you're labeled as a bigot and a white supremacist. Can we stop with this incessant, insidious practice of slapping people with those labels? That woke you up, didn't it? And so, and I, I say that lovingly so because it's just, it's the deflection from the necessary conversations that need to take place. So with that said, we're going to turn to Ephesians 2. Are we good? Are we okay? Okay, good. Thank you. So let's continue here. So we're in Ephesians 2, and I want to set the context. So we, we shared this at the beginning of the series, but Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul. To the church in Ephesus. And, and this church was a diverse church made up of Jews and Gentiles, which at first you're like, oh, that's wonderful, very cool, very hip and progressive of them. That was every church that Paul planted and wrote letters to. It is not unique that the Ephesian church was a multi-ethnic congregation. That's what the church was. There was no, there was no monolithic, singular, homogenous ethnic church when Christ began the church with his disciples. And so this letter that Paul writes, and as he addresses the realities of Jews and Gentiles being together, this wasn't just like a unique issue that was plaguing the Ephesian church. This was the reality for every Christian that existed at this time, because this is what the church was. And so, so Ephesians is unique to all of Paul's letters because it's the most generic letter. In fact, there are some that believe this was a letter that Paul wrote and it was almost like a forward email that he sent to multiple people. Because it doesn't address people by name. It's not addressing a particular situation or occasion or theological doctrinal error. It's basically like Christianity 101. Everybody should read this. It's basic introduction into what the gospel is. And so what that means is that everything within this letter should be seen as basic and timeless for all people all, uh, throughout all generations. The work of the gospel producing ethnic reconciliation and unity is not just unique to some circumstances, it is necessary in all places. Additionally, so if you were with us last week, we, we were in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, a familiar passage. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and the ways in which you once walked, but now God, rich in mercy, has saved you. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not a work of your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
And we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he created before the foundations of the earth. And we stop at verse 10. I should stop doing that. I really should. But we stop at verse 10. And we're like, okay, good. We've got it. Verse, verses 1 through 10, the gospel of grace. We're saved. Good. Got it. Now we, we move on to verse 11 and talk about something entirely different. And in our Western individualistic comp, uh, kind of compartmentalized ways of thinking, we see that these are like two separate ideas. But for Paul, there's no such distinction between verses 1 through 10 and 11 through 22. It is one continuing, flowing thought that the gospel of grace that transforms us, unmerited, undeserved, unearned, is the foundation upon which the reconciliation of all peoples across ethnic barriers is established. In the same breath, Paul moves from the saving grace of God in Jesus to the necessity of ethnic unity accomplished by that same grace. These are not two separate ideas. They go hand in hand. The redeeming work of Christ through his gospel, the redeeming work of Christ through his gospel does not simply make new humans. It makes a new humanity. It makes a new family. And so if there's one idea that you hear and take from our time together, I want it to be this. The gospel makes us and moves us to be family. The gospel makes us, it declares and secures the reality that those who are in Christ are family, whether they like it or not. The gospel makes us, but it also moves us to be family. So the message of Jews and Gentiles being reconciled together as one, pe one people, this was central to the message of the gospel. Again, this wasn't unique to Ephesus. They weren't having ethnic uh, squabbles and fights. This was necessary for the church throughout all times. And so when Paul says in verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, we stop there. We're like, okay, it's good. We've got it. We're saved by grace, and we're, and we're saved by grace in order that we might live a life of obedience and work to God. But then how does verse 11 begin? Therefore. So in light of this amazing grace of God towards us that is unmerited and undeserved, that is the foundation upon which we build a basis of ethnic reconciliation and unity. God has graciously forgiven and redeemed us so that, in order that, he might make us a new unified people to the praise of his glorious grace. These are not two separate ideas. They go hand in hand. Dr. Lynn Kohick, in her commentary on Ephesians, it's, it's one of the more brilliant commentaries I, I've read in Ephesians. She says this, The scope of Christ's work on the cross extends from personal forgiveness to remaking the people of God done in a single redemptive motion of death, resurrection, and ascension. And so she, she's saying that these two things go together, that the, the salvation of the individual and the remaking of a new community of people is one thing. And she says this point is especially pertinent for those who see personal salvation as step one and corporate participation in the church as step two in their Christian journey. And she goes on to say that there is no such distinction between these steps. It is all the same step. That when you are redeemed and united to Christ by faith, you are simultaneously redeemed and united to his bride, the church. And his church is undoubtedly, undeniably, unequivocally a multi-ethnic congregation of people. And so what Paul is doing here is he's giving us this beautiful excursus on what the gospel is. He is preaching a both-and gospel, if you will. A both-and gospel. What I mean by that, that just as the cross of Christ had a vertical beam... And a horizontal beam, 
the message of the gospel of reconciliation has with it a beautiful vertical message of reconciliation to God and a beautiful horizontal reconciliation to one another at the exact same time. It is not one over the other. There is one that, that proceeds absolutely. We cannot be reconciled to one another without being first reconciled to God. Amen? That is, that is paramount. But they go hand in hand together. And we may be tempted to draw a line between verse 10 and 11. Like, well, we got verse 10. Okay, we got grace. Okay, good. We're done. Okay, we got it. Good theology. Now let's figure out how we live together. Like, it's meant to be all one message. And what's so interesting, when you read verses 1 through 10 and then read verses 11 through 22 side by side, there's amazing similarity in the language that Paul uses, similar terms, similar literary devices. If, if you look at verse, uh, verse 3... Paul begins by saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But then similarly, when you get to uh, verse 12, he says, you were, referring to the, the, the Gentiles, you were at that time separated from Christ. And so you see in both instances, he's referring to our past lives. Similarly, verse 4, that, that beautiful word, that beautiful word, but, with one T, to be clear, just so you know. That's, that's funny, that'll be funny later. But, uh, but what, is, what does Paul say in verse 4? But God, being rich in mercy... And we see that same beautiful word showing up in verses 13 and 14. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so what this means is that ethnic unity in the church isn't merely an application of the gospel. It is a continuing extension of the gospel. It is not just something that we apply. It is absolutely the gospel made manifest, embodied in the local church. That is why it is so unhelpful at best and unbiblical at worst to make the claim or say something like, stop talking about all these social issues and just preach the gospel. That is a very impoverished, truncated, minimized understanding of what the gospel does in our world. The reader of modern American history will remember the words of Dr. King, who penned these words in letter from a Birmingham jail. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. What Dr. King is pointing out is that there is a betrayal of the gospel when we settle for a message that is purely a vertical reconciliation message. Is that a beautiful message? You better believe it. That you and I as broken sinners are reconciled to a holy and just God. But a vertical only reconciliation gospel is an incomplete gospel. It keeps going. And simultaneously, on the other side of things, a horizontal reconciliation gospel is an incoherent gospel. It has no foundation upon which to justify the work of being reconciled together. Why should we? What's the point? We naturally tend to be with people that we like. It is only an otherworldly message that compels us to do something that is out of this world. 
The two go hand in hand. Again, listen to the words of Dr. Lynn Koek. She says this, the peace that makes the two one, the Jews and Gentiles, all peoples one, is not an entailment of a personal justification, a second step, if you will, in an individual salvation journey. Instead, the new humanity created by this peace is another way of expressing by grace you have been saved. What she's saying here is that the message of the gospel that we tend to read through a very individualistic lens, like Jesus forgives me and I'm good and I get to go to heaven and be with him. Now that's true, but it's an incomplete story. That, that, that's like describing Star Wars as like some weird kid is trained by a frog to kill his father. It's like, that's not, it's like yes, I guess that's kind of true, but that's not really a summary, an accurate summary of Star Wars. I don't know where that came from. I, I apologize for that. But, but the point being is that that doesn't summarize the fullness of the gospel. The gospel makes us family, and it moves us to be family. But what's really important here is that we have to understand that ordering. We do not make ourselves family. That is a work that is secured and accomplished by God first and foremost. The work of ethnic unity and reconciliation in the church is a work done and secured by God first and foremost. Listen to verses 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace. Who has, he's the one who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. By the work of Christ redeeming us from sin and the curse of the law, that is the basis that allows us to call God Father. And, and by faith to call one another, who are in Christ, sister and brother. It is a work that is done outside of us. So, so let me illustrate this way. As a, as a pastor, I've officiated uh, several weddings. I have never done a wedding where I've shown up on the wedding day and the bride and groom say, hey, Reed, thank you for being here. We are going to declare ourselves husband and wife ourselves. We'll, we'll, we're going to do that work. And I'm like, well, you, you, just, you just can't do that. Like, like there's, you can't just tell, tell yourself that you are married. You can't even legally do that. And theologically, you can't do that. Someone must declare you husband and wife who has authority outside of you. But just after that, it doesn't mean that you are there, therefore not responsible for this new life that you now have. Someone must create this new life of oneness, but you now are responsible for living as a new family, as a new entity. And so every wedding homily that I've given, I say something about the beauty of God making the two one, and now the responsibility that the two have to live as family. They go hand in hand. So just as a wedding doesn't simply make the two one, but also makes a new family, the work of God's redeeming grace through Christ doesn't just reconcile us to God, but reconciles us together. As Paul says in verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The gospel makes us family. We do not make ourselves family. We cannot contrive or fabricate any kind of ethnic unity by ourselves. We are made family, but we are also called to move and move as family. Listen to how one of my seminary professors, Dr. Jarvis Williams, says this in his book, One New Man. It's not that we build our unity, because Christ built that. 
Christ didn't make this a possibility for us to achieve. He made it a reality that he achieved and created full stop. The unity of the church is accomplished and secured in Christ. But just because we've been made family, it doesn't mean that we act like family. And anybody, does anybody uh, have, have a family, been in a family before? You know, like you know what that's like. You know that just because you are family, it doesn't mean you act like family. And so for the church to actually live out her identity, to actually pursue unity, she must first see the reality that she is a family. And that the burden is not on us to make ourselves family, but we are responsible for living as though we are. And one way we see that, that Paul does this, he tries to remind them, like, like you guys are all in the same family. He levels the playing field for Jews and Gentiles in verses 17 and 18. He says, and, and he, referring to Christ, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. And then for through him, we both, have access in one spirit to the Father. And so both Jews and Gentiles were at once far from God and were brought near. They, they received the message of peace. Both of them needed the message of peace. They have both been brought near. And now they both have equal participation in the spirit and are both now able to call God Father. And Paul says this to them, not just to give them good theology, like, hey, do you understand like, that, that we all have access to the spirit and to the Father? He says this to them so that they might move, so that they might do something with this declared truth, which is why right after telling them, you all share in the same spirit, you all have the same father, you have all received the same message of peace through Christ, and then verse 19, so then, because of that, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so to connect this to modern day just for a minute, this declaration that we share in the same spirit, call God Father, and are now called to be citizens and members of the household of God, it means that there is an expectation that God has for his church to be an ethnically unified people on mission together. That is the expectation at the beginning of the church in Ephesus. And not just unique to Ephesus, but to the church full stop. But we aren't living that way today. We, we don't see that, that type of unity and collaboration as we see Paul describing it for us. We don't always live like family. It's like it, kind of what Paul is saying. He's kind of employing the same tactic I use as a parent. When I, when I see my kids fighting, I say, like, you're family. Now act like it. You know, there's kind of an expectation that you can't treat your sibling this way. Like, yeah, yeah you can talk to, like, your neighbors that way. No, like, you can't. But, like, but the point being is, like, you don't treat your family this way. Speak to your brother and your sister like family because they are. Paul is not just telling us this so that we would have good theology. He is telling us this so that we would be compelled to embrace and live out the reality that the fullness of the gospel brings together diverse peoples to bring glory to God and make the gospel seen and heard in the world in profound ways. It's why he uses the word citizens and members. He doesn't just say that you're family, but now you are a citizen and a member. And a citizen and a member has duties and responsibilities that come with it. 
The gospel makes us family, and it moves us to be family. And one of those responsibilities that is given to the church as a diverse people is that we are to be unified together in order to reveal and to reflect the glory of God. It's really easy to hear this message in our current cultural moment to be like, yeah, cool, diversity, reconciliation, that's hip and sexy, that's really cool. Like, that's not what Paul is talking about here. He couldn't care less what Instagram influencers think about what this message is. He is proclaiming this because it is how the glory of God is made manifest in the world. And the reason I say that is because what Paul says, again, flow, this is all just one long run-on sentence by our brother Paul. And in verse 21 and 22, he says this, In whom, in Christ, in whom the whole structure, the whole church, is being joined together, and it grows into a what? Into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What this means, the temple in the Old Testament the temple in Jerusalem, it was a symbolic representation of the glory of God in the world. It did not literally house the glory of God, for it could not house the glory of God. What Paul is saying here is that the necessity of ethnic reconciliation in the church is a means by which the glory of God is seen and made manifest in our world. It is not just a cool way for people to get along and look like a Coke commercial during the Olympics. That's not what what Paul's getting at. He's trying to show that this is a way to display what the gospel does and shows the glory of God in our world. Paul is now saying that the way the glory of God is seen in our world, one of the most profound ways it is seen in our world, is through this new ethnically unified body of believers. And what that means is this, that one of the more powerful ways that we declare the gospel of Christ is in how we display the body of Christ as an ethnically unified and reconciled people. I'm going to say that one more time. One of the more powerful ways that we declare the gospel of Christ is in how we display the body of Christ as an ethnically unified and reconciled people. The work of ethnic unity And reconciliation in the church is not simply an outworking of the gospel. It is not simply an application of the gospel. It is a powerful, living, embodied testimony and public witness to the gospel. And so when we talk about this, when we talk about this work, this is not just something to make us feel good. So for those of us who are in majority white culture, we don't talk about ethnic unity and reconciliation to appease our white guilt that we have. The purpose of this is for us to display the glory of God in the church that is now the temple of God seen in one people made of all peoples. The gospel makes us and moves us to be family. But here's what it says. So that's beautiful and that's profound and that may be inspiring and motivating. But here's the thing. We risk losing the credibility of this testimony and this witness to the gospel as the church when we at best... See, the work of ethnic unity and reconciliation is a mere fringe benefit. Like, it'd be nice to have that, wouldn't it? Or at worst, see it as a distraction from the gospel. And what I, what I believe to be true is that the work of ethnic reconciliation and unity is not just some fringe benefit. It'd be nice if we had it. And it is absolutely not a distraction from the message of the gospel. It is a way in which the gospel is made known and revealed and where the glory of God is seen. 
Dr. Tony Evans, in his book, Oneness Embraced, says these beautiful words that are both comforting but also convicting. He says this, the reason we haven't solved the race problem in America after hundreds of years is that people apart from God are trying to create unity, which is that, that was kind of the point I said about how our culture is leading the conversation now. The problem is that people apart from God are trying to create unity, while people under God who already have unity are not living out the unity we possess. The result of both of these conditions is disastrous for America. Our failure as a church to to find cultural unity as a nation is directly related to the church's failure to preserve our spiritual unity. The church has already been given unity because we've been made part of the same family. The gospel makes us family, and it moves us to be family. And so if we are going to meaningfully, biblically, faithfully reconstruct our faith, it must be done upon the foundation that the gospel unequivocally and undeniably speaks to matters of ethnicity and race and unity and reconciliation and justice. Are there problematic ways that our culture talks about these things? Absolutely. But we know how to chew the meat and spit out the bones, do we not? We can listen to what is being said in our culture and try to apply it to what Scripture says, but I believe there are too many Christians in the church who see the conversation of race and ethnicity and justice and reconciliation as just some woke progressive liberal agenda. And in so doing, they are abdicating their leadership and responsibility in showing the glory of God in the world and what the gospel does. And so let me end with these three things for us to consider. There's so much, obviously, we could say. And we'll talk a little bit more about this next week as we get into chapter 3. But the first thing I would say is this, is if we are going to make any kind of movement in this direction, we need to repent and trust in Jesus. There's, like, there's no other starting point. There, it's not like, uh, read this book and listen to this podcast and check out this documentary. Like, there's, that, that's not where we start. We start with repenting and trusting in Jesus. He is our only hope in life and death. We are all without hope if we are all without Jesus. That's that's true. There is no hope for ethnic unity or justice apart from repenting of sin and trusting in Christ. Because the gospel alone makes us family. We need to repent and trust in Jesus. Second, we need to recognize the dividing walls. Recognize the dividing walls. Paul references the dividing walls of hostility. And we need to be willing to recognize both past and present dividing walls. And even as I say that, I know that there's a tendency for people to say, why do we keep talking about the past? I wasn't there. I never owned slaves. I was not complicit in Jim Crow laws. And I get that. I understand that. And I would say, I I believe it is false to say that we are equally as guilty and culpable as our ancestors who owned slaves. I, I think that is a stretch to make that claim. But it is also immature and irresponsible for Christians to say, not my problem. The moment... The moment you cast your lot in with Jesus was the day you forfeited the right to say, not my problem. When we understand the gospel of Jesus, that our king made our problems his problems, that is the day that we realize we are not permitted to look at the problems of others and say, not my problem. So yes, are, are, we, are we guilty and complicit in the, the work of our ancestors? No. But we are responsible for the world that we've inherited. We are responsible for the world that we inherited. 
Dr. Erwin Entz says this in his great book, The Beautiful Community. He says, some Christians argue that we shouldn't even talk about race or use the word since it's a man-made concept. Using the term only serves to further divide us. Discarding the word race, he goes on to say, would make it easier to ignore the devastating and deadly impact of racialized ghettoization, the, the dividing up of people groups based on skin color. Further, we would fool ourselves into thinking that this is just a problem of the past. And so, yes, are the raging fires of racism, have they been mostly put out like slavery, Jim Crow, redlining? Yes, th those things don't happen in the same form and version that they, that they did. But there are still embers that have heat. There's still residual smoke damage that exists from the vestiges of these things. And for us to quickly say, let's just get past it does not fully understand and recognize the dividing walls. And so to deny the reality of our racialized culture is to grant power to our enemy who uses any form of division he can to keep us apart. And so yes, race is a biological construct, but to claim that moving beyond the conversation of race will remedy the problem is like putting your thumb over the check engine light on your dashboard and hoping your car will work fine. You get me? We need to at least recognize the dividing walls. As Dr. Jarvis Williams says, race is a biological fiction, but it is a sociological fact. It is absolutely a man-made construct, but it is, it's still a reality in our world that we have to deal with and understand. And so we need to recognize, grieve, lament, repent if necessary as we see these dividing walls. And then thirdly, we need to rebuild the ruins. As I said, we are not guilty of the past sins of those that have come before us. But we are responsible for inheriting the world that we now live in. And so can you imagine, as I said, can you, can you imagine, I, I, I'm a part of a blended family. My, my uh, parents were divorced when I was young. I have a stepfather. Can you imagine a stepparent looking at one of their new stepchildren and saying all of the drama and baggage that you're bringing from that previous family, not my problem. Could you imagine a parent saying that? If we are to rebuild the ruins of what has taken place, we have to stop this very destructive, minimizing attitude and mindset that says, not my problem. Because again, if you have united yourself to Christ, you have forfeited the right to look at other people's problems and say, not my problem. Because Christ has made your problems his. Not, not, not just even to the point that he shares in them, that he became them. Jesus did not simply suffer for us, he suffered as us. He became our sin so that our sin might be nailed to the Christ cross and we bear it no more. We worship a king who not only saw our problems, but became our problems so that they could be crucified and redeemed forever. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to a higher and fuller understanding of community of justice, of unity, and of love. And when you identify yourself with Jesus, you in the same breath identify yourself with his church, which is unequivocally, undeniably, undoubtedly, a multi-ethnic group of people who praise and proclaim the name of Jesus. And when this happens, we now have the blessed responsibility to share in the joys and the pains of our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
The gospel compels us to be a people who see the problems of our neighbors as our problems. For indeed, that is what our Lord Jesus did for us by literally becoming our problems, our sin, our shame, and nailing it to the cross. And so if we are to be a people who embrace, believe, declare, and live out this gospel, we must see that it is absolutely a message of grace that moves us to be a people of reconciliation and unity. Because the gospel makes us family and it moves us to be family. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May you be holy to us in our minds, our hearts, in our bodies, in our words, our actions. Lord, what I ask in this moment is that you would, by your grace and through your spirit, would, would you widen and deepen and stretch the view of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, so that we might see that what he has come to do is to redeem and restore all things that have been broken by sin. Lord, may we see the fullness of your grace that that moves us to move towards others. Lord, may we see the beauty of the glory of God that is seen in your new people united together that tells a different and contrary and subversive story in comparison to what our world tells And so, Lord, would we know and believe and receive this gospel that makes us family so that we might be moved to be family and live in light of that truth. Lord, would you do this for our good, for the glory of Christ Jesus, so that the gospel might be known and seen and that the glory of God would cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is why we are pursuing this work. May it be so for our good and your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.